We are talking about a politics in church today. Uh, okay, settle down a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to dive into political issues or platforms or, or anything like that. Uh, I, I am a Bible teacher. Uh, my job is to help you understand God's word and learn how to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ. But as we continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Luke in the Bible, today we've come to a very important question about this subject. So I want you to see it. So everybody in the whole room, grab a Bible, grab something. Uh, There's a Bible in front of you under every chair. We're going to be on page 718. Or maybe you brought your own, or you can use a phone. If you use the renovation app, just have Bible and weekly verses. And we're going to see today that Jesus is going to talk to his followers about how they should relate to the state, to the government, politics, whatever you want to call it. And this is a massively important question, right? I mean, the Lord has us here. We're not choosing this topic. It's just where we are in the book of Luke. And I think this is good because it's a massively important subject in America in the year 2021. People have all sorts of different opinions on how Christians should interact with the government and with politics. Now, we're going to read the passage on page 718, on Luke chapter 20, in just a second. Uh, but let me just say this as a preface. This is an enormous topic. Uh, we could do easily uh, a 10-week series on this if, if we wanted to. So uh, please don't send me any emails that say, hey, you didn't say this. Uh, you're right. Uh, you made an excellent point, And I totally would have said that if I had more than 30 minutes. See, I already answered your email. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Let's take a look. Luke chapter 20. And we are at verse 20, 2020. We should have done this last year. Okay, (laughs) here's what it says. It says, keeping a close watch on him, Jesus, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're just, they're flattering him. And then they ask this question. They say, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. That's like their coin. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Okay, so let's start here by looking at what these opponents are talking about. And let's try and see if we can understand some of the historical context around some of this stuff before we begin to just apply it to modern day. Because there's some things I think we want to understand about Caesar and taxes and the denarius and all that kind of stuff. See, these opponents are absolutely convinced they have come up with the perfect question to trap Jesus in. So here's the historical context. This is in Israel, and at this time, 2,000 years ago, Israel has been occupied by the Roman Empire, the extending arm of this massive Roman Empire. And the Jews in this area, no longer have autonomy. So they're not led, their country is not led by a prophet or even by a king. They have to pay taxes to the Roman Empire. And Jesus' opponents are convinced that they've trapped Jesus with this sort of question about Rome because here's what they're thinking. They're thinking, if he says, yes, pay taxes to Rome, 
well, then most likely thousands upon thousands of his followers are going to desert him because they hate Rome. Rome is this occupying force from this other place, and they do not want to pay taxes to Rome. So they think they got him there. And if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Rome, well, look at, if you still have it in front of you, look at verse 20. <clears throat> you see this part where it says, they were, they were ready to hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. That's because they're kind of waiting for him to say, no, don't pay taxes. And if he says that, then the governor, Pontius Pilate, is going to look at him like, hey, this guy's an insurrectionist. And they can just arrest him right then and there. And then in this dramatic moment, Jesus says, show me a denarius. Now, the denarius was this Roman coin. It was worth about a day's wages or so for a laborer. And Jesus says, whose image is on it? Whose inscription is on it? And they say, well, Caesar's. So they say, so give to Caesar. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So what's he saying? He's saying, okay, well, if Caesar paid for those coins to be made, which history tells us that he did, if Caesar distributed those coins and you're using those coins, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so Jesus is affirming that the government can make and does make legitimate requests on us because of their authority and the services that they provide to us. And God's inspired word, the Bible calls Christians to obey and to be subject to the authorities. Now that's a whole other message, and perhaps we should spend a, a day on that sometime. But if you're going, what? Does like the Bible actually teach that? That Christians are to be subject to, are to obey the authorities of the government. What I want you to do is I want you to do a Bible study on your own. I'll give you two chapters. You can read and you can study. Rather than just taking other people's words for it, write this down. Uh, you can read Romans chapter 13. Uh, Romans chapter 13 is where you see this idea of Christians being subject to the governing authorities. And then I want you to read the second half of Acts chapter 5, which is this exception clause for when Christians actually shouldn't obey government authorities. And there are times and places where that is necessary, but that's what you're going to really have to study for yourself. When is that? And we see this. We see this even today. There are Christians in China who disobey the authorities every single week, and they meet secretly in the underground church. But the basic point of what Paul teaches and what Jesus is teaching here is be subject to your leaders, even the leaders in the government. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, but what about the other parts of your life? Because he also does say, but give to God what is God's. So one way to think about this is this. Okay, if the coin has Caesar's image stamped on it, then what image do you have stamped on your soul? In fact, this is answered in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, I'll show it to you on the screen, verse 27. It says, <clears throat> So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You are God. You are made in his image. Now, you're not God, just like that coin with Caesar's image is not Caesar, but you are like God, and you are made in his image. You are his 
In fact, everything really is God's, right? That's part of Jesus' brilliant answer here. If Caesar made the coin, sure, yeah, fine, give it back to him. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But if God made you and made everything, then truthfully, everything is ultimately for God. The authorities in government have merely been put in place by God. And so any authority that government leaders have is underneath God's authority. Let me give you a way to think about this. <clears throat> Imagine you're a CEO of a medium to large organization. And let's say that organization has 100 employees. Now, in an organization that big, certainly many of those employees are actually managers, and they have authority over the people that work underneath them. But in a typical organization, the CEO still has authority over the entire organization. He's the ultimate authority. Now, if you take that and you think about today's world, this world has many governments, right, across the planet. And there are many Caesars, many leaders who have authority, but God is still the CEO. And therefore, Jesus is teaching that your life is not ultimately for Caesar. Because Caesar is just in middle management. It's first and foremost for God. Now, if we're going to answer this biblically tricky question, of how should Christian... I guess it's not biblically tricky, but it's a tricky question for us. If we're going to biblically answer this tricky question of how should Christians relate to politics, we need to understand this very concept. We have to see our responsibility to the government within our primary responsibility to God. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching his followers. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give back to God what is God's, which is everything. And I think people have been misunderstanding and misapplying this particular passage for 2,000 years now. What happens is we look around at the society around us and we go, it's broken. Everybody does this around the world and we've been doing it throughout history. We look at the culture around us and we go, oh, this, is, this world is broken. We've got to do something to fix this. We feel that. But rather than look to God first to fix it, too often we put our hope in middle management. Now, let me show you the ways that people do this. And I'm going to start by actually going back to Jesus' time. So, if you go back to Israel, 2,000 years ago, the Romans have come in and they're occupying. And most of the Israelites are looking around and they're going, this is broken. This is bad. This is not working right now. We've got to fix this. And what you'll see in Jesus' day, there were essentially four different camps four different philosophies on how people should interact with society. And then Jesus adds a, a fifth one into the mix. So let's take a look at this. So his five groups, five philosophies on how to interact with society. The first group of people that was around in Jesus' time were the Essenes. And the Essenes, they looked at the Romans coming in. They looked at the, all the paganism that Romans, the Romans were bringing to the culture and they said, this is awful. We don't want to be influenced by it. And so we are going to withdraw from society. These are the people that essentially lived off the grid. They did. They packed up. They moved out of the area and lived out in the desert. 
so they would not be influenced at all by the changing society. Okay, so that's one way to respond to a changing society. Okay, second group of people you saw in Jesus' time were the zealots. The zealots looked at the broken society and they said, you know what we need to do? We need to overthrow society. We need a revolution. They wanted to fight the Romans so that they could take back their country. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago and we talked about Jesus weeping over the future destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70, you'll know that these people actually eventually won out and they got their war, but it obviously didn't work out because the Romans leveled Jerusalem to the ground. Okay, third way that people look at changing culture and go, here's what we got to do, is seen in the Sadducees of Jesus' time. The Sadducees, their idea was to just simply adapt to society. These folks basically just acquiesced to Roman rule and Roman culture. They were the tax collectors. They were put in power. Their philosophy was basically, if you can't beat them, what? Join them. And that's what they did. And they just changed. They simply adapted their values and beliefs to the changing culture. And by the way, many of them were given a lot of status and power for doing that. And here's the fourth group. Some of you might recognize these guys. These are, here come the Pharisees, another big group of the time. And their idea, they thought the culture was really broken too. And their idea to fix it was to reestablish the old ways of society. They thought society could be fixed if they could just get everybody back to the old Jewish ways of obeying the law and becoming moral again. Now, Jesus fought often with the Pharisees about this because Jesus' change is always from the inside out. And they thought, if we could just make people obey the rules, then society would be fixed. Now, what is fascinating about this is you don't really see these groups, these particular groups around anymore, but these philosophies are seen all throughout history and all over the globe, even today, right? Okay, take the, the Essenes, the, the withdraw from society group. Is this still around today? Absolutely. You know what a really good example of this is? Is the Amish, right? That's what they've done. They said, culture is corrupt. And so we're going to completely remove ourselves from it. Now, secondly, there are zealots all over the world today, right? You, you see this in the news. What was it? In Myanmar, right? That was a, a month or two ago. The, many of the people in Myanmar, and, which is in Asia, if you don't know where that is, uh, used to be Burma, uh, they looked at their culture and they said, it's broken, and so they had a coup, and the military is taking over their country. This is the last 50 years, this is happening in Africa all the time. It's happening in Eastern Africa right now. They're looking, they're saying, okay, our society is broken, it needs to be changed. They're not waiting for spiritual change. They don't have the systems to vote in a different party to create change, and so the idea is to violently create change. Now, in these last two, adapt to society or reestablish the old ways of society, you're really common. This is the common debate kind of in Western society, right? One group, the third group, thinks that if we just kind of evolve our views and our laws with the changing society, then our country will be a better place again. While the other group, the last group, thinks if we can go back to how it used to be, then the country would be a better place and culture would be fixed. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit here just for the sake of time, but the main point I want you to see is because these philosophies are still so prevalent, 
Most people nowadays, even Christians, feel that if we're going to make a difference in the world, if we're going to fix society, it's going to have to come through the government. Because notice this, with the exception of our Essenes and Amish friends, all three of the other groups feel that they're going to need power over a group to create change. They need to be in power. But you read the Gospels, and you study the life of Jesus Christ, the one we're trying to become like. And Jesus is very different, right? Very different. His power always comes from under, not over. Jesus is constantly resisting the temptation, even from the devil himself, right? Matthew chapter 4. To take power over the kingdoms of the world. We've been talking about this a lot the last month. Everybody thought that Jesus was going to do that. That he was going to victoriously, like number two, fight against the Romans. Or that he was going to somehow take over their government. But he shocks everyone and he lets them kill him. Because his ways are so different. And we see his ways effectively then being played out with the birth of the church and the movement of Christianity through the first couple centuries. You know, you get to the, the fourth century, you know, you're about 300 years or so beyond Jesus, and you see that the majority of the Roman Empire have become followers of Christ. And how did that happen? I'll tell you, it's not because the Christians won enough seats in the Roman Senate. It's because the Christians were living out the gospel of Jesus in word and deed. And spiritual revival swept across the land. Here's an interesting question for you. Think about revival. When you just see a ton of people coming to Christ and societies even being changed. Can you have revival from any of those four systems of creating cultural change? You can't. It doesn't happen. And so let me put words now to the way in which the Christian, biblically, is to interact with society. And this will help us answer the political question as well. So here's what we put down for Christians. Christians, biblically, are to be ambassadors for Jesus within society. Uh, We see this, I'll I'll put this back up on the screen in just a second. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We, Christians, are therefore Christ's ambassador, right? You know what an ambassador of a country is? You represent that, con- that person, that country in a different land as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we are citizens of the United States, but the scriptures tell us that our first and foremost, our citizenship is actually in heaven. That's Philippians chapter 3, uh, sans the United States part. We are, as believers, we're strangers in a strange land. We are pilgrims passing through on the way to our final destination. Our first allegiance is to the king of heaven. Whose image is stamped on you? Whose image? Is it Caesar's? Is it a political party? No, it's God's image is on you. And therefore, your greatest concern is not to do 
the will of middle management in establishing their kingdom. Your greatest concern is that God's kingdom would be established and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you are his ambassador, and we are to live out in word and deed our lives for him. And let me tell you something, church. We are absolutely messing up this biblical principle in our day, in this country. We have taken politics, which are a good thing, but a secondary thing, and we have made them a primary thing. We've become convinced by one of these other philosophies that change, if we're going to fix our culture, that change must come when we get power over others. And we feel so deeply in our soul that change will come through these middle managers. You know, I'm I'm somewhat fascinated by this trend, but uh, Christians in America are immersing themselves in politics in a way they just never have before. And part of that is just due to the rise of technology. They're reading about it. They're watching political TV, they're listening to political podcasts, they're watching political stuff on YouTube hours and hours and hours a day. We spend very little time with God and in his word, but we spend hours a day just consuming political content. And for many of you in this room, or maybe you know someone like this, the obsession is just consuming you. And you're finding that you're way more anxious and irritable than you were even two years ago. You worry way more angry than you were two or three years ago. And you're losing what we talked about a couple weeks ago, of Jesus weeping over the lost. You're losing God's heart for people who think differently than you. And you know, the great irony of the state of politics in America is we spend, I don't know, something like a hundred hours a month immersing ourselves in politics and zero hours a month actually doing anything about it. You ever think about that? That's actually insane. I mean, yes, you can vote once every few years. I pray that you do. You can be way more active in politics, right? You can run for office, you can campaign for somebody, but 98% of people spend 100 hours a month immersing themselves in politics and zero hours a month actually doing anything about it. I'm amazed by how bold people are in their politics nowadays. This is a huge shift, even in the last couple of years. I cannot tell you how many people that I have met, I meet a lot of people, How many people I've met in the last 12 months who within minutes of meeting them, they're talking to me about politics? Last couple days I've been thinking, you know what? If we spent 100 hours a month reading and thinking and talking to Jesus, we'd actually probably be able to do what we all want to do and boldly talk about Jesus within the first couple minutes of meeting someone. But let me tell you the reason why we do this. The reason why so many Americans nowadays spend so much time reading and thinking and listening to politics and not even do anything about it is because most of us don't actually live by this Christian worldview. 
where we believe that change most deeply comes when we are ambassadors of Christ within a society. Instead, we actually truly believe one of those other philosophies, even if we wouldn't admit it. The philosophies that are concerned, first and foremost, with just getting power over. Here's what I find. I find that most Americans just believe that as long as their Caesar, the one that they voted for, is in power, then things are okay. And what we're most deeply afraid of, and this is why we consume so much content, is because it's fear. What we're most deeply afraid of is not having the right people in office so we could have power over society. Christian, let me speak to you from just what God's word is saying. Let go of your fixation on which middle manager will have power over society and get back to focusing again on the one who is above and has power over absolutely everything. Our Father in heaven. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Go back to spending your time, first and foremost, on being an ambassador for Jesus in this world. I don't want you to hear me incorrectly. I am not putting down politics. I'm, I'm really not at all. It has its place. As, as somewhat of a, a novice amateur historian, I will tell you that there are so many laws that have been passed in history that have done so much good to help people and protect people. Legislation is really important. And for some of you, God is even calling you into politics. And you will fight to pass laws that are godly. Some of you, he's calling you into nonprofit work and you'll work with politicians to advocate for the poor and the unborn and the widow and the foreigner and all the people that are just so near and dear to God's heart. That's being an ambassador too. Right? Ambassadors don't just talk, they act. And that's part of how we live out the gospel in society. But remember, please remember, and I just feel like no one's remembering this anymore because we're so laser-focused on, we've got to get power over. We've got to get power over. Remember, plenty of revivals have occurred around the world and are occurring around the world right now in places where political conditions are actually really awful. You know, it's interesting if you really think about this globally. We kind of step out of our narrow focus on America. Christianity is really actually waning in the West right now. Where religious freedom is actually still relatively strong. But Christianity is exploding in places like China, Iran, fastest growing place that Christianity is growing percentage-wise in, a, in the whole planet right now is Iran. Pakistan, revival is going on in Pakistan. Afghanistan, and a whole bunch of other places, places where it's illegal to even become a Christian. And you think about these places when you think about this text. The Christians in these places have no chance, zero chance, of ever getting power over in the next few decades, probably, a society. 
And so, they're just coming under. Like Christ. Like the church in the first few centuries, who had no chance of getting power over the Roman Empire. And so, they're just coming, and they're serving, and they're serving, and they're loving, and they're sharing the good news of Jesus... And in their focus to just live like Christ, revival is breaking out in front of their very eyes. All while we're back here thinking, if we just had power over. If we just had power over. And if you ask those Christians in any of those countries, if you go to them and you say, hey, would you like it if you lived under a different political system? They're going to say to you, Yes, duh, absolutely. Of course we would. But are they discouraged? Are they in fear? Are they without hope? Are they distressed? Absolutely not. Sure, they'd love to replace their middle manager, but their main purpose, what they live for, first and foremost, is to be an ambassador of the king of heaven. And they're going to watch thousands and thousands of people become citizens of heaven all of the time. Church, we have to remember our primary mission. Wake up. Remember your primary mission. The mission of eternity. Because if you remember that, and you, yes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God. If you remember that, then no matter what happens... No matter what happens in the government, no matter what happens in this country, no matter who has power over, then you don't have to fear because you're not an ambassador of middle management. You are an ambassador of the king of kings. So let's get to work. God, we just uh, we ask for that. We, we pray for that. Remind us who we are. We are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of the king of kings. God, speak your word to our hearts again. May we reflect you. May we reflect you, Jesus. Amen. You know, I just got to say, you know, before we wrap up here, if you're here today and you're hearing about this and you're going, this is different. You know, I heard about Jesus, but when I hear about Jesus on TV, it's like Jesus in a political party. I just want to tell you, just, real, just for, give me two minutes. This is who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth and he died on the cross. And he died for your sins in your place. And the Bible says that if you believe in him, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life because your sins then go on Jesus on the cross. And you can be forgiven. And it will absolutely change your life. The Son of God will come into your life, revolutionize your life. And instead of spending eternity someday in hell, you spend eternity in heaven because you put your faith in Jesus. And if there's anyone in here today where you're going, that's, that's the Jesus I want to know. I want to believe in that. I want to give my life to him. If that's you, would you just, would just, real quickly, would you just raise your hand? I'll give you 10 seconds or so of saying, if that's, I need to do that today. Would you just raise your hand, and we can pray for you and get you started in that. It's kind of a bold thing to do. All right, amen. Anyone else? Amen. All right, amen. Anyone else going, yes, I just, that's the Jesus I want. I, 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 I want to give my life to him. I want to believe in that. Okay. 
For any of you that you're doing this, if you're doing this for the very first time, you're going, yes, today's the day I want to do that. I just want to pray with you. So if you're doing this for the first time, or you believe for a long time, would you just repeat this prayer after me? Dear God, I confess to you that I have sinned against you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. And God, I thank you for forgiving my sins. And now I commit to following you with my life. As everyone still kind of has, is just in this state of prayer, for those, the number of you that raised your hands in this room, what I want to do is I feel like it's a really important decision to say, what I want to do is I want to make Jesus the leader of my life. And if that's you, we just want to give you some next steps on how to do that. So we're going to go back into a time of worship now. And as I'm kind of praying to move into that, what I want you to do while people are praying, would you just sneak out of your chair and head into the lobby? And I will, I will meet you out there. We have some follow-up people that will get up too, so you won't be the only one getting up. And I will meet you out there, and I'll just give you some next steps on how to do that. Does that sound good? Important thing to do, but I, I want to meet you out there to get you going, and then you can come back into the service. All right, let me pray. You can head out. Lord, thank you so much uh, for your word that you, in your timing, you brought us here in Luke chapter 20. And uh, God, may we just submit to your word and submit and trust you as our CEO and as our leader. It's in your name we pray. Amen.